You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with your host, Harry Stebbings, and you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. And if you can't get enough of all things Sasta and have read Sasta's content and wondered how you can really train your teams on Sasta's best practices, well, Sasta Pro solves that problem. And you can sign up today on sastapro.com forward slash podcast and let Sasta train your team for you automatically, each week sending your team a highly actionable lesson meant to help you grow faster and drive discussions on how to improve. Such an amazing platform being built there. But to the show today, and we head back to school for another of Lemkin's lessons. For those that do not know, Jason Lemkin is the founder of Sasta, the world's largest SaaS event with over 20,000 of the world's best SaaS founders and investors attending every year. Jason also invests from Sasta's debut $70 million fund and has made prior investments in the likes of Algolia, TalkDesk, Mixmax, Rainforest QA, and many, many more incredible companies. And in today's episode, Jason will touch on everything from how to think about long sales cycles, when the founder should step back from sales slightly, how to think about revenue per lead, and much more. But before we dive into the latest of Lemkin's lessons, another product your team will thank you for is Full Contact, the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform with an identity graph of over a billion people, providing the information and insights to help companies identify and build more authentic connections with customers and prospects. From June the 6th to June the 8th in Denver, Colorado, Full Contact is bringing together leading minds from the worlds of data and marketing for the Connect 2018 conference with incredible panels, keynotes, and networking opportunities and featuring speakers from world-class companies such as Google, Oracle, Nestle, Deloitte, and more. Plus, listeners to the Sasta podcast have the very special opportunity to purchase a ticket for half price. Just go to fullcontact.com forward slash connect and enter the code SASTA50 in the discount box. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SAS, RegPack. RegPack is an online registration solution designed for any kind of event that requires registration. More than 5,000 organizations use the platform to process millions of registrations per year, with customers often highlighting RegPack's cost-effective pricing and quality support. And you can learn more at regpacks.com. That's regpacks with an S.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like RegPack did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. And WePay's got this incredible smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, and that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But you've heard quite enough from me. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to let Lemkin's lesson commence. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. And kicking off the lesson today with how to think about and approach long sales cycles. So the other day I got an email from a founder that I know well, uh, and she was saying how they just closed a great Fortune 100 company, a great logo, but it taken over a year since the first meeting. <laughs> now, this company is just crossing a million in revenue, so a year seems like forever. But let's step back for a minute. Ultimately, long sales cycles don't really matter. And why is that? A couple things. First of all, one, it comes with the territory. Fortune 500 companies don't buy in a week or an hour and a day like you and I do and SMBs do. It just doesn't happen that way. There's multiple stakeholders. Two, ultimately, if you're going long, you need multiple stakeholders in the iron. So you need need deals closing this month, next quarter, next year. And so if it doesn't close today, if it's a good prospect, if you genuinely believe they'll close in Q3, that's still important. And lastly, help will come. Um, When you finally hire a great VP of sales, what she or he will be great at is not doing the impossible, not getting Google to buy in a day or GE to buy in a week, but he or she will shorten it as much as possible. Uh, And probably on average, cut these long sales cycles by half. 
once you get that great help. Until then, just hack it. And what's the number one mistake we make besides being anxious? We set the wrong expectations for sales reps before we have that great VP. If you're gonna early hire a sales rep and just have her or him work on big deals, are you gonna give her two quarters before she closes anything? <laughs> it's pretty stressful. This will be even stressful when you're a 20 million or 50 million in AR, but at least you'll be able to blend it against all your other reps and all your other channels to acquire customers. So my biggest suggestion in the early days is if you're gonna hire an AE in the early days just to do bigger deals, don't let that be all she does, or you'll be anxious for quarter after quarter as you're paying her salary, and her OT will probably be the highest in the company, and you'll be stressed out when in the first two quarters she closes nothing. Instead, split her leads 50-50 between big and large, and later let her just do all the large ones. That'll make your life better. Uh, good luck, and get a little zen about long sales cycles. At least you're in the deal, uh, and that's the first to winning it. And speaking there of how AEs spend your time, we're now going to move on to lead rich versus lead poor and the right way to think about that. One topic we've only briefly touched on on Saster that deserves a lot more ink and time is lead rich versus lead poor environments. Because I think this is one of the most important ways to get more revenue out of all the good hard work you're doing getting leads into the company. And getting this right is a mistake actually I continue to make as life goes on and I work on and with more and more companies. And what's the difference? Well, Roughly, a lead-rich environment is when there are sufficient leads to each rep that they don't really follow up with all of them. Uh, and a lead-poor environment is where there's barely enough leads, maybe not even enough leads for a rep to make quota. And I traditionally have liked lead-rich environments because I love an environment where every salesperson can make or exceed quota. I love the energy there. It creates low churn and low turnover. People recruit their friends. When there's enough leads to go around, everyone starts to, to tap into their network and say, you're startup is a hot place to work. That plus a great VP of sales is how you really build an amazing sales team. And the great sales teams because of this have almost no churn whatsoever. But if you take it too far, reps just don't follow up with anything but the best leads. Uh, and it happens again and again. You'll go in and you'll find out if reps have too many leads that half the leads or more they barely even touch or they're not worth their time or uh, they push too hard or they just want to put them into a cadence and not follow up. So what's the right answer? I'll come up with two suggestions. For a typical inside sales team, it's hard for a rep to follow up with too many more than 50 good, decent leads a month. You can score them how you want, but there's only so many demos a day you can do, so much follow-up, and if you give reps too many more than 50, uh, it's possible it's too many. Number two, put an SLA in place. So if reps don't follow up with leads, they're routed to another rep, and even consider having a dedicated rep, a cleanup rep, who her or his only job is to close the leads that the other reps don't follow up with. Put that SLA in place, and you'll find much more momentum in your sales team. And staying on the theme of lead optimization, it's now time to talk about revenue per lead. There's a metric we talked about a lot in the very early days of Saster, revenue per lead, that I've really never seen anyone talk about since. But I actually think this is one of the best tools for you as a CEO or founder for growing faster from, say, sales rep three through number 20. And, it, and it's knowing revenue per lead. And what we all get really good at is understanding how much revenue a sales rep is generating. We know exactly how much Linda or Bob or Joe booked last month, but how did they get it done? How much revenue do they generate per lead? And uh, for your first two reps, you'll know. Uh, typically, if you have two reps, you'll split the leads in half. Bob will get half and Linda will get the other. And you don't need to know the revenue per lead, but it's hard to keep track from reps three through 20. And here's the key. Once you can start granularly knowing how many and which leads to send to which rep, you'll learn so much more. On my first team, I learned that some reps couldn't possibly process more than 50 leads per month because as soon as I gave them 51, they didn't generate any more revenue. But some of our top performers 
could handle 100 or even 150 leads per month because they were so efficient. Uh, in other cases, um, there were follow-up time issues. Some reps were great at following up in 60 seconds. Some took hours. And you need to know how many leads of which type to route to each rep. And it's work. But if you can do this, typically you can get about 20% more revenue out of however many sales qualified leads or just leads in general as you would otherwise if you're always routing the right lead to the rep that can process them the most. Uh, so try to figure that out after about 20 reps, after as many as you can fit on one sheet, uh, one PowerPoint slide, it's too many. And you just have to judge reps uh, and the whole process from lead to close based on how much revenue each human generates. But from three to 20, get each lead into the hand of the right rep for that lead and you will grow much, much faster. And the last element on sales for today's episode being when should the founder really take that first step back from selling? I want to chat for just a, a little while about probably the number one mistake in sales that I see founders make, which is stepping away. I see this again and again. We're not all natural born salesmen. Many of us, this is the first time we've done sales with our startup. And somehow we convince the first 10, 15, 20, 100 customers to join us. And we finally find one good sales rep and we kind of step back from sales. We don't spend as much time. Or maybe we wait until we hire a good head of sales and she turns out to be pretty good. And then we stop working on sales. And I see this again and again, and it never really works. When the CEO steps out of sales, sales always goes down. And the rule, real rule to remember is however much time you spend in sales when you started, it will never be less. If it's 20%, it will always be 20%. If it's 50%, it will always be 50%. At the SAS annual each year, I asked many of the best SaaS CEOs how much time they spend in sales, whether it's Peter Gassner from Viva, Jeff Lawson from Twilio, Phil Fernandez from Marketo. They all still spend a ton of time in sales. Phil from Marketo said he wished he could spend all of his time uh, in sales and customers. And then I also often ask them, how much time should you send with prospects, with potential new customers, uh, with post-sales? And the answer from the best CEOs is always both. You have to spend 100% of your time with both. Now, that's obviously not quite possible. But the real takeaway is you never get to sell less. Your role may change as it scales. You may, when things are bigger, you may jump in and out of deals. You may be there only for the big ones. You may fly into fewer deals and spend more of your time doing other things. But the amount of time you spend in sales will never go down. And I'll tell you a last quick story. I remember when we closed Groupon as a huge customer and I flew out to Chicago in the middle of winter with my team and we were meeting with their sales ops team. You know who was in the customer conference room across there? Mark Benioff from Salesforce with his team. He was still in sales then, he's still in sales now and you've got to do the same thing. So we heard Jason talk there about the amount of time you have to spend in sales as the founder and CEO, but you also have to spend an immense amount of time in fundraising. So we're now going to move on to fundraising and why SaaS startups have to raise quite so much VC funds. But let's chat for just a second about why you need to raise so much money. And the reason is competition. Think about it for a minute. Almost any SaaS company, no matter how they got there, should be able to be cash flow positive by four to five million in ARR. By then you can hire 50, 60, maybe in uh, less expensive areas, 70, even 80, 90 employees. That's enough to service your customers and ship some code. But competition then is what drives the cost up. When you have multiple players all competing for the same leads, the same AdWords, the same everything, your marketing expense goes way up and also your sales efficiency is going to go way down. You're going to have to pay your reps out more when they win fewer deals. That's just a fact. So if you want to stay cash flow positive or get there, you may need to pick your battles. You may need to be figure out where you're number one, which segments, even niches you can be and stay there because the other ones are going to be a lot more expensive. And I think if you look at the SaaS companies that burned little cash, that's really what they did. They stuck to where they were strong and were 
number one and let other areas go. But the flip side is what SaaS companies do that raise a ton of money is they do dominant strategy. They also play to win in areas where they have no presence or are very weak. And if you think about the flip side is that's very expensive. If you enter the market as the fifth player in a niche, even if you're number one in many other segments, it's going to cost you a ton in sales and marketing to get it off the ground. But if you had infinite capital, you might do that because that's the way to win all the marbles. So when you raise hundreds of millions in SaaS, you're often playing dominant strategy. But there's one thing that's the losing strategy, which is the middle. Raise a bunch of money, but not enough for dominant strategy. Um, and you're stuck You're stuck in no man's land. You're trying to enter areas where you're not as strong, but you don't have enough money to do it. So either stick to where you're strong or go for all the marbles, but be careful of getting sucked in the middle. It's too many rounds of capital for not enough success. And what about when competition goes one step further and we start to see cloning? Once you have something good, once you've been around for two or three years, you're good at PR, folks start to use you, have even a bit of a mini brand, you're going to have clones. Folks are literally going to take your product and copy it. And as a founder, it will create some anxiety for you. It tends to create even more for the team sometimes. Um, and the knee-jerk response is to dismiss clones, to say there's no way they're as good as you. But that's the wrong approach. Actually, your first clone may be pretty weak, but by the time the second or third comes around, they're usually pretty darn good because you wrote the playbook. And even more so, something that, that's not obvious is that once big companies start to clone you, big companies always have 20 or 30 extra great engineers around. You don't. You will struggle to ever have an extra engineer. And believe it or not, you can make fun of big companies, but be careful. One thing they're great at is having surplus great engineers. Uh, so assume that the second or third clone will be quite good. And in fact, in some ways, it may even be slicker and faster and more elegant than the superficial version of your product today. But the thing is, the clones don't usually win. Not if the team's great. And you see this again and again. And why don't clones win? A few important reasons. First of all, the clones don't know the marketing customers. It doesn't matter if they can copy the end user version of your product. You have a thousand customers and you know what they want. That also means your product roadmap is like 50 times better than the clones. They're catching up to what they can see, but you know five years into the future by the time the clones are good. They have no idea. And the third but subtle reason is nine times out of 10, the big companies quit after a couple of years. They do have those extra engineers, but they don't have an extra hundred salespeople, marketers, customer success people. And once it gets complicated, once it's more than software, but it's a team of a hundred plus revenue and product professionals go along with it, they usually can't sustain the pace. So stick it out and go long. Take the clone seriously, but have confidence in what you know. You know much more than they do and build the team around it. And on the topic of building the team around it, our final lesson stay on when to hire your first VP of product. Uh, first of all, most of us make this hire way too late, primarily because we've never worked with the VP of product before, most of us. Uh, and typically the way we build product in the early days is you'll have a CEO and a CTO or the two founders and one of you will kind of hack wireframes and figure out what to build and go talk to customers and figure out requirements. The other one will go do it. Uh, and when you have two to three use cases and are figuring it out, that's fine. The last thing you need is someone mucking that up and creating a bunch of Gantt charts and whiteboarding stuff when you don't need that extra person. You've got a couple of use cases for your products, maybe five to 10 workflows, but then things sneak up on you. Even by the time you're at 2 million, 3 million in error, your product gets really complicated. Instead of that two or three use cases, you've got small, even large customers. Now you've got 10, 15 use cases, different integrations, and combine those with other things. Maybe you've got 50 workflows, and you know what? It's too many to hack. 
and you will not make your customers happy and you will not be able to manage the myriad of complexity of the future of your application without someone that all he or she does 50 or 60 hours a week is figures out where your product should go and how to manage the team so it gets there today. You can't hack it five or 10 hours a week any longer. So then you go to make the hire and what's the mistake most people make? They hire someone too junior. It's the same mistake in marketing and in many ways the same mistake in sales. And let's talk about this. You can definitely hire a stretch head of product, but people don't do that. They hire a product manager from Box, from Yammer, from Dropbox, whatever. And the problem is the 88th product manager from these companies has never brought a product to market. So my one criterion for your first head of product is they have to have owned a product, not an entire product, but at least a piece that's gone to market. Uh, And then the last question is, do they need to be an engineer? Usually not, but I'll tell you, it sure helps if they've managed a small team, but you can be flexible there. Well, I think Jason Lemkin deserves an award there for the amount of nuggets of wisdom you can fit into a 20-minute episode. As always, fantastic to hear from Jason. And you can find him on Twitter at JasonLK. Likewise, you can see me on Instagram at hdebbings1996. It'd be great to see you there. And do not forget to check out Sasta Pro forward slash podcast, where we train your team on Sasta content. That really is an incredible product. But before we leave you today, another product your team will thank you for is Full Contact, the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform with identity graph of over a billion people, providing the information and insights to help companies identify and build more authentic connections with customers and prospects. From June the 6th to June the 8th in Denver, Colorado, Full Contact is bringing together leading minds from the worlds of data and marketing for the Connect 2018 conference with incredible panels, keynotes, and networking opportunities, and featuring speakers from world-class companies such as Google, Oracle, Nestle, Deloitte, and more. Plus, listeners to the Sasta podcast have the very special opportunity to purchase a ticket for half price, just go to fullcontact.com forward slash connect and enter the code SASTA50 in the discount box. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SAS, RegPack. RegPack is an online registration solution designed for any kind of event that requires registration. More than 5,000 organizations use the platform to process millions of registrations per year, with customers often highlighting RegPack's cost-effective pricing and quality support. And you can learn more at regpacks.com that's regpacks with an s.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like regpack did visit wepay.com forward slash sasta and wepay's got this incredible smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments again that's wepay.com forward slash sasta as always i so appreciate all your support and i cannot wait to bring you next week's episode with christina shen at bessemer venture partners